Good morning, Malcolm. What a great way to start the day with uh, some music by Mississippian Olu Doroff, originally from Natchez. That's right. Olu is some, uh, he's quite a, quite a story, and his son is a pretty well-known rapper. Uh, Java, do you know his name? Naz. Naz. No, 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 we're not going to do that this morning. Nas. <laughs> Nas. Oh, sorry. Sorry, well, Java. You know, it's a learning moment. It's Nas. It's a teaching moment. There we go. Oludora there <clears throat> on our uh, Monday morning wake-up show. Uh, if you don't like that music, the best thing you can do right now, ladies and gentlemen, is turn off your radio and go back to sleep, because that's about as good as it gets. Otherwise, we'd love to have you hang with us here on Deep South Dining. Carol, how was your weekend and your week? Just, you know, it was a sunshiny week, lots of good fishing, good eating, good cooking. I mean, this nanosecond in Mississippi is just spectacular with the cool mornings in the 40s and, you know, the temp gets up to 75. I was I was a happy person this week, a happy camper. I think they call this Indian summer, but regardless, it is an interesting time here in this part of the world. Before we launch into all the things that we cooked and ate and shared with friends, relatives, and loved ones, I want to acknowledge the loss this week of one of our great supporters on cooking and coping, uh, the great brewmaster uh, and dear friend, uh, Brooks Hammaker passed, and, and Brooks uh, originally was with the Abita Brewery. He was their first brewmaster. And he later came to Hallamow's and helped us uh, in 1999 open uh, Mississippi's first independent brewery. And Brooks was uh, a real uh, devotee of uh, Southern culture, music, food, uh, all of the above. And he will be greatly missed. And our condolences to Brooks' family and his uh, kids. Uh, Sorry for your loss. Malcolm, I'm so glad that you did that. He's been heavy on my mind, too. Uh, and with Thanksgiving coming up, I think about our last interaction with him a few months ago when we were doing the the segment on community cookbooks. It was Brooks' grandmother who had the famous Thanksgiving sweet potato casserole recipe in Cotton Country Collection, the classic cookbook from Monroe. And we and, almost got him on the show. And I, I don't know. know what happened. We, we, he said he was coming on to talk about that, and he must have gotten busy making beer. I think he was in North Carolina. Uh, uh, he was in Durham. He was yeah. in Durham. Uh, anyway, we'll think about him when we make the Cotton Country Collection sweet potato casserole uh, this Thanksgiving. And on a lighter note, our Hill Country correspondent, Uh, Chico Harris posted a a beautiful photograph uh, about a piece of fish uh, in the Enville Grocery. And I think it's pronounced Enville. It's E-N-D-V-I-L-L-E. And it's in Pontotoc County, uh, somewhere between Tupelo uh, and and Pontotoc. And, And this is what he said. He posted this. I walked into the Enville Grocery this morning 
to pay for gasoline, and the elderly frying grease lady was standing smiling at me in the way that meant one thing. She had just put fresh catfish under the heat glass. I looked, and there were six fillets lined up like redcoats. I want, Chico said, I told the grease lady, that one that is flirting with me. And without hesitation, she raised her tongs and retrieved the exact piece of catfish that was flirting with me. And he posted a beautiful picture holding it up of his catfish filet. That is the love of the of, of, of Southern culture and the Deep South dining that we represent. And all manner of people and things flirt with Chico. <laughs> and I'm so proud that he is he is our North uh, Northeast Mississippi correspondent. There was also a great post on uh, on the Cooking and Coping Facebook page by our Memphis correspondent Tim Pierce, and it starts off saying the darndest thing. We just woke up to the voices of a woman and a man talking in our living room. At first, we thought it was outside the front door in the common area of the building. But as they continued to talk, I was able to focus and recognize the voices of Carol Puckett and Malcolm White in our living room, having a conversation about how long it takes a frozen turkey to thaw. (laughs) It turns out that somehow his Alexa... (laughs) paired with his phone he had been listening to deep south dining and got out of his car and so at 4 50 in the morning uh he hears us in his living room uh and also malcolm you went on to talk about eggs in a jar from your (laughs) (laughs) from your trip up to north mississippi for the pickwick weekend where tommy cadle made his famous eggs in a jar So it's good to know that we're haunting the dreams of of some of our listeners. And that we're on Alexa's radar. Yeah. I think think that speaks well for Deep South Dining. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And one other observation uh, on cooking and coping. Uh, I I, I read a lot of the posts over the weekend, and and there was one from Sarah Sawyer, and she was talking about the uh, egg and olive salad that she was making and uh, a 1950s-style chopper that she used that she says you can now get online for $20 and figured that her grandmother probably paid less than a dollar. But it got me thinking about uh, egg egg and olive salad, Uh, and, you know, Around these parts in the deep south, egg and olive is a big deal. And yes, so I think is. we should devote some future time uh, to the discussion of, uh, of recipes uh, and formulas for, for egg and olive uh, salad and egg and olive sandwiches. I think that that would be a, a worthy, worthy topic. Now, this weekend, I'll share with you and you share with me, uh, my culinary highlights were my granddaughter, Wren, and I. Uh, roasted hot dogs and marshmallows last night out in the yard. So I took my uh, charcoal chimney and I starter, and I was getting it ready for to grill some chicken that Kara had marinated. But what we took, we did was we took the opportunity when the charcoal chimney starter starts to flame, and we used it to roast hot dogs and marshmallows. 
Uh, and I'd never thought about that before, but I did that. And I think it's a, a good tip for people to think about bef- while they're getting your charcoal ready, <clears throat> use the flames when they come to the top uh, of the charcoal chimney starter uh, and roast whatever you might with a stick uh, over that. I think that sounds like a perfect way to entertain a grandchild. She loved it. Absolutely. I bet she did. Well, the highlight of my weekend cooking was potatoes au gratin. John was hungry for potatoes au gratin. So, you know, I got got out the old cheddar cheese and, and potatoes and put it in a copper round casserole. And I had just forgotten why people like potatoes au gratin. And it's hmm. because they are just good. That's they're, why. They're ooey gooey. They are uh, ooey gooey. And, and uh, I served some fresh speckled trout, just a beautiful speckled trout with it. But it was, the speckled trout was a side to the potatoes au gratin. I thought that was uh, a good point you made that while generally the fish would be the entree and the potatoes would be the side, that you were very clear that you and John were making potatoes and were going to feature some sort of side uh, as an entree. Exactly. And and I'd like to, to remind our listeners, please join us on Cooking and Coping. All you have to do is go to Facebook, look up Cooking and Coping, Gathering Around the Virtual Table. It's a site that Malcolm and our good friend Leanne Galt and I set up back the first week of the pandemic, and it has grown to 2.8 thousand people. Oh, my goodness. And it it is just so interesting to see what people are doing from all over the country, from, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. So there you go. It's inspiring, and we appreciate each and every member of Cooking and Coping, and we would encourage others who may be listening uh, to join the, the fun. It's it's not complicated. Uh, it's right there on, on Facebook. At our house, we made soups also this week. Uh, I made a tomato chicken soup uh, that I really enjoyed. It was leftovers, really. It's what my grandfather, uh, M.R. Stewart, would call slumgullion. And slumgullion like is a real word, and it is a real uh, concept of, of making soup. But his idea was once a week he would go into the refrigerator and clean everything out and make a giant pot of soup out of whatever was in there and called it slumgullion. And so my chicken and tomato soup was very much like that. Now, Kara, on the other hand, much more organized, a different type of cook, made a wonderful uh, soup uh, out of mixed greens and um, uh, chicken also, but it it was delightful. So we have two soups in the refrigerator as we speak. Malcolm, I, I just heard the word slumgullion for the first time when you oh. said that about your grandfather White. And I just looked it up real quickly in my Food Lover's Companion book, which is this wonderful encyclopedia of cooking terms. And it says this slang term originated during the California gold rush and describes dishes, soups and stews made from leftovers. Well, there you go. So there you go. And as if you didn't believe it before, now you can believe it. All right. It is now time for our first break. And when we return, we will be talking about the origin of the Delta State University mascot, the fighting okra with 
the university's archivist, Emily Jones. And later in the show, we will talk with author of the book, The Whole Okra, Mr. Chris Smith, uh, a friend of Felder Rushing's from across the water. So stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Listening to Carol and I and Java carry on about the the flavor of Southern culture, but also you're listening to the Delta State fight song. Carol, what do you know about Delta State University? Well, Well, I just wanted to say this is a listening medium, and uh, I just wanted you to know that you can't see me, but I do have on my fighting okra t-shirt this morning. Oh, wow. And yeah, Delta State University is located in Cleveland, Mississippi. And, you know, Cleveland is just one of the coolest towns in Mississippi. There is so much going on there. And of course, Delta State is the center of that and Grammy Museum, Mississippi. Uh, but, you know, the fighting okra is the unofficial mascot. You know, many of us think it's the official mascot, but it is the unofficial mascot of Delta State University. And the okra, the okra has big red boxing gloves. I mean, it's a very fierce piece of right. okra. This is this is not passive passive right. okra. And uh, I believe they the the logo or the slogan for the town of Cleveland is "Keep Cleveland Boring." Uh, I yeah, I think it's keep Cleveland board something, something like that. I can well, hear, em- I hear well, Emily. We'll hear that up. <laughs> now we'd like to invite Hi. to our show, the Delta State University archivist, Emily Jones, and she can clear up all issues related to, to Delta, to, to Cleveland and to uh, Delta State. Welcome, Emily. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. All. I didn't know you could hear me chuckling, but yeah, um, we do like to try to keep Cleveland boring, you know, and that's just supposed to be a <laughs> matter facetious. Yeah, well, I, I know that it's facetious, uh, but I thought I got it right. I wasn't sure. Well, it is, it is anything but boring these days. I mean, there's you know, live music everywhere, a new hotel downtown. Grammy Museum, Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I love to go there. I spend a lot of time up there. Hey, Emily, I haven't seen you in a while. I know. It's been a minute. <laughs> You're doing all right. Doing great. We are so excited to have you on and get you to tell us how the legend of the okra came to be. <laughs> well, you know, like any good story, there's about three different ways it started and grew. <laughs> so um, basically, there's uh, two really strong stories that buy for um, how the okra came to be a part of Delta State's landscape. Um, one is, just a real quick one, is that, you know, 
legendary coach Boo Ferris um, went out on uh, north of how we ate to build our baseball field. And at some point, um, there was a really ornery, stubborn um, okra plant, can you imagine, um, at home plate. And he had to fight that okra plant so that he could have his field. Now, if you knew Coach Ferris, you would know that he is a statesman through and through. So I find that one a little hard to believe, but I am not going to mess with somebody's, you know, favorite story. I'm just going to keep telling it. <laughs> the other story, yeah, I just try to be a gatekeeper, not so much a choice maker. Um, the other story is that um, there was a resident advisor, an RA, and he played on the basketball team. And his the guys on his floor would come and support him at the basketball games, and they would hold up these signs that said, our RA is okay. You know, support <laughs> oh. And so across the room, if you rework, you know, rearrange those letters, it spells OKRA. Our RA is okay. And so OKRA, and, you know, if you've ever been in Sillers Coliseum, it's intimidating um, to be the opposing team. And so Fighting okra. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's it, a lot of folks that put in that they're the, you know, they they wrote about the the origin of the okra. So there's more names involved with it, but those are the two arching stories. Well, I'm going to come down on the side of Boo Ferris and the okra plant at first. Day. <laughs> that you know, that's what I choose to believe, but. The yeah. fighting okra is not the official mascot of Delta State. It's the no, statesman, which has been around for years. But oh, I yeah. feel I feel safe to say that uh, most of the students are captivated and use the fighting okra. He's definitely the one that gets the attention. Um, one side. He's, he's been on David Letterman. The okra's been on David Letterman, the Food Network. He really is his own agent. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> but, so, you, you know, know it he, really has, it's garnered Delta State so much publicity all over the country. And uh, I was going to tell our listeners that you can go online and just put fighting okra t-shirt or fighting okra gear in google mm -hmm. and uh you'll be directed to the delta state bookstore or some of the other college gear sites like fanatics that have fighting mm -hmm. okra shirts and it's the perfect gift for the food lover in your life it, you know great other gear too but it's it's a a very treasured item people all over okay. the country write in for fighting okra t-shirts and you know you could, used to couldn't get them online um, when I came, before I came back to work here at Delta State over almost almost twenty years ago, I would carry T-shirts back and forth to Georgia to my employers and my friends, and they, I mean they just ate up that well literally ate up that um, <laughs> okra T-shirt. <laughs> and and I I did the same when I worked in Greenwood for Viking Range, uh, you know. Many people would come to Mississippi for the Southern Foodways Alliance in Oxford, True. 
and would call me, you know, before they came, send emails, and I would, you know, haul up uh, Fighting Okra t-shirts. And, you know, one year we had a bus tour at Southern Foodways of the Delta, and, and we pulled the bus up at the Union and cleaned out the okra gear. <laughs> well, hey, he definitely... <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to ask you approximately what year uh, or time frame did this phenomenon occur where people uh, begin to joke about the fighting okra and then it grew into this unofficial mascot state? Okay, um, mid-80s is when, mid to late 80s is when the idea germinated. And then we did not see our first actual okra mascot um, in person until uh, homecoming of 1995, when a, um, actually a friend of mine, uh, created an, an okra costume for his fraternity's uh, homecoming float. And I don't know if y'all remember what the Delta 95 looked like, but we had a plague of um, crickets and grasshoppers. Mm. And so their, uh, their float had the okra stomping out the grasshopper. It was weird. It was fun. It was Cleveland boring before Cleveland was boring, but he, um, that, that mascot died by the end of the, uh, the, the, um, homecoming tour. Um, so he had to rebuild the, the okra costume, the one that we're most familiar with before he got a brand new Botox, you know, smoothed out, updated look. Well, it has a great look. And the reason we are talking about okra here in the middle of, of November is that tonight you're hosting an event at Delta State, um, an okra talk. It's a, a Zoom talk. Is that right? Tell, tell us about it, yeah. uh, Emily. Well, okay. Funny thing. This whole book is the, the Chris Smith is, uh, has written a book called The Whole Okra, and it's a history of where okra came from, how it got to be where we are, how it's gotten into all kinds of different um, cultures and who it represents. And I love the way that he talks, he starts out his book with a family reunion. I won't give too much away, but boy, don't we know what it's like to be the weird one at a family reunion or <laughs> have that person in our family. And that's kind of the okra in this book. Um, and so because of okra and our fighting okra at delta state um we all a bunch of us around campus read his book and thought well he's kind of smart we like him let's bring him to delta state and talk about what the whole okra is so that we can you know be even more proud of our fighting okra well it's right this is your homecoming weekend yeah, uh, Emily, how do people sign up? I, I, I am signed up, but I don't remember uh, if anybody's listening and, and wants to uh, sign up for the, the talk in the Zoom session tonight. Yes. Okay. The surefire way that um, I've been pointing people to sign up is um, to go to our Facebook page, um, Delta State Facebook page, and I am just double-checking, but you can just type in um, the whole okra, and the event pops up, you sign up. If not that way, then I'm 
like 99% sure it is on Delta State's website. I should know this better, but, you know, I click on through my cell phone, and it doesn't always happen the way everybody else gets to things. But I'm very sure that, yeah, mm-hmm. you can go to deltastate.edu and click on uh, the second headline on the front page of the Delta State website, and you can follow the prompts to join in tonight. Okay, and it's called Okra Talk? Yes. And who is interviewing him? Um, it's a group of us, actually. Michelle Johansson, who um, is in charge of our Diversity Awareness um, Committee. And then we've got uh, occasionally me popping in. And Chris Smith, of course. And let's see, I think um, James Forte, who is part of our alumni association. He's our alumni director. This, this is part of uh, Homecoming Week at Delta State. All right, Emily, thank you so much for being with us this morning and helping clear up the history and lore behind the Fighting Okra unofficial mascot at Delta State yep. University. And good luck tonight with your virtual event around Homecoming with author Chris Smith. We will talk to you again soon. Okay. Now it's time. All right. Now it's time for our break. And again, we thank Emily for joining us. Uh, For more information about Delta State and the Fighting Okra, you can visit their website, deltastate.edu. Up next, we will talk with James Beard, award-winning author, Chris Smith, about the talk that he is giving tonight and about his book, The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. So stay tuned. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. I'm gonna flavor it with okra, cayenne pepper to make it hot. Welcome back to Radio, where we will take an entire hour of your day and talk about okra, and that's what we're doing today. Carol, introduce our guest, if you would, please. Well, okra is such a, such a worthy subject, Malcolm, and you and I refer to it all the time. So we were very excited about Chris's book, and we are so happy to welcome on the show this morning Chris Smith, who is the author of The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration. And obviously, you know, we are not the only ones who are passionate about okra because his book won the very prestigious James Beard Award for cookbooks. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, in your book, you mentioned that your first encounter with okra was in 2006. So uh, tell us, how does a guy from England you know, come to love okra? Well, that's, that is the question. I, um, 
I grew up in England. I didn't come to America. 2006 was actually my first trip to America, and that was just like a vacation, a kayaking trip to the Appalachian region. And really, that first experience with okra was probably the first time I'd actually even heard of okra. And it, it was just at the roadside greasy spoon in Clayton, Georgia, or just outside of Clayton, Georgia. And I'm pretty sure it was one of our friends trying to play kind of like a, a joke on us. And they just pushed across this, you know, overcooked, greasy bowl of fried okra that, you know, wasn't, wasn't the good representation of okra. And as a group of British travelers, we all kind of were like, yuck, what's this? What's this? And we just rejected it. And it kind of, I guess, stuck in my memory enough that I, I remembered to, you know, recall that when I got more deeply into okra. But other than that, I didn't really think about okra again until I moved back to America in 2012 to marry my American fiance and um, and had a much different experience with okra. Do you want me to, you know, do the good side of the story? Yeah. <laughs> I, we better had, I guess. So when, when I came back in 2012, uh, my wife, Belle Crawford, is from Columbia, South Carolina, and I was kind of obligated to go to a, a bridal shower. I didn't really know anybody. So I, I went to her bridal shower. And as a British person, I had to sit through uh, smiling and saying thank you for all these wonderful gifts that people were generously giving us. And it was just kind of embarrassing for a, a British guy in America to to go through that. Or maybe just for me. I won't speak for all the British guys. Um, and one person gave us a box of Indian spices. They knew that we traveled to India and, and it was full of delicious spices. And in that box, there was a single dried okra pod full of seeds. And that came with this story of how she had got these seeds from a roadside stall in Rosamond, North Carolina, and had then grown them herself and saved those seeds herself and then it gifted those seeds to me. And I kind of grew up with a, a gardening background and my brother owns a seed company. And so this was kind of like very special to me to receive these seeds. And when I got my own space and land to grow, that they were one of the first things I put in the ground. So I, I grew okra for the first time. And whenever you grow something, you get a much different experience of the plant. So this was no roadside greasy spoon. This was something I had grown and was harvesting and was exploring and eating. And it just was the beginning of a a journey that culminated in this in this book, or maybe culminated in talking to you guys on this radio show. I don't yeah. know. Um, but e either way, it launched me into uh, appreciating okra on a whole new level. So uh, is it safe to assume, Chris, uh, that okra is not a thing in England or was it just not a thing that crossed uh, your radar? That's a good question. I, I kind of reflected a bit on that myself. I, I'm from the north of England and certainly where I was, it, it's not a thing that is grown in gardens or even in greenhouses. We're just too cold in England. We do have a large Indian population and there's a lot of, you know, Indian curry houses and that kind of thing. So Indian food's a big thing. So I'm, th there's a possibility I had experienced okra in a, like a curry as bindi. And certainly once you get into more like cosmopolitan London or bigger city areas, then you'll find it in markets and, and supermarkets and, and it's more accepted there. But kind of where I grew up, I, I had no experience of it at all. And, and I don't think I was alone in that. Have you always been a seeder, a seed collector, or is this something that you came to later in life? Yeah, my I, I grew up with my mom being a big time home gardener and my brother's a, a horticulturist. So I was always exposed to kind of like the home gardening world. 
but I, I didn't really pick it up until I came to America, to be honest. Uh, I, I found that I, I knew more than I knew I knew from that kind of like le childhood learning by osmosis. But I, I came to it much later in life. And we understand you're buddy-buddy with one of uh, our colleagues here on MPB Think Radio that you and Felder Rushing kick around a bit. Uh, we we had spoke on the radio quite a few times, and, and I was lucky enough to be able to speak to him about okra in some of my earlier days. So, yeah, it was it was fun to hear his perspective. And I love reading his books. He's, he's a yeah. funny guy. <laughs> a, a funny and very knowledgeable guy. Very. Uh, in, in your book... Uh, uh, which I loved your book. I, I really, uh, this morning I was texting Malcolm that, I, that the recipes were just killing me. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm redoing my Thanksgiving menu so I can have one of your recipes, which is an okra and sweet potato. I think, I think it was from the book, but uh, I've got to have okra on my, thank, on my Thanksgiving table. <laughs> but you call it the people's vegetable. Why do you call it the people's vegetable? Well, you know, I I came to okra late in life and as an outside observer. So, you know, I, I don't actually claim to own much of the knowledge that's in this book. A lot of it's just reading and research and speaking to people uh, and, and those kind of ideas and, and, and some of my own experiments. But a lot of it is like knowledge that was known in the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, and then okra fell out of favor or didn't keep progressing in the direction that it was thought of in those times. And so a, a lot of this information is just like historical uh, reintroduced information. So when we talk about okra being the people's vegetable, th that term was on put on a poster that was used at an Alabama okra festival I think in the 90s. So it's a pretty, um, it's it's a pretty old term in, in that respect. You also find it cropping up in. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Lost Crops of Africa, where they uh, obviously okra comes from Africa and came across with the slave trade, and that's how it came into the the southern states. And in Africa, it it's spoken of as this crop that is you know is always giving very productive, low nutrient to grow, and it's just a really robust, useful, nutritious crop to grow. So in that sense, I think that's the way it was picked up by the Alabama Okra Festival. Even in the harshest, hottest summers, when everything else is dying in the garden, <laughs> we, can we, we can still rely on okra to provide, and that's a pretty <laughs> special trait. Absolutely. We have on the phone, as I understand it, the one and only Felder Rushing calling with a question for you, Chris, or a comment. Okay. Hello, Felder. Good morning. Good morning. And, and that's not so much a question. By the way, Chris, uh, these two folks you're talking to are not defined by being foodies, but they are among the top foodies in the South. I just want to let you know that. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and even though you're the king of okra here in America in Lancashire, where you and by the way, I know your parents, I know your brother. I meet them at all the flower shows. <laughs> But in, in England, you would be known as Lord Ladyfingers. Lord yeah. Ladyfingers. That's got a yeah. nice ring to it. Well, you know, that's, that's one of their names for it. And, you know, of course, the, the Bindi and all the, the restaurants. Anyway, what I want to do is I just want to put a plug in for your book. It's not just about growing okra, although you get into so many varieties. Uh, you get into to ways to grow it, uh, even switching it to make it produce better, uh, but also every possible way to use the stems and the seeds and unbelievable number of recipes. It's an incredible foodie book. 
that happens to be about just one overlooked vegetable. It's an incredible book. And the stories, you know, you and your dog, come on, man. I would like to also mention uh, that, that, that when you started, when you first landed in America, you were lucky to land in the south because Lancashire, where you're from, Preston, that's like the Mississippi of England. You know, and the way you talk, the the way everything about, you know, your approach is laid back and people-oriented. It's just no wonder that you and Okra fell in love with each other. <laughs> we, were, we were destined to meet. And I still think it's hilarious that you, I, we've spoken so much about Okra Felder over the last few years. And I've never actually met you in person. And yet you've gone to England and met my entire family. And that that kind of amuses me every day. <laughs> yep, I was I was headed to, to visit you when you were doing one of your harvests, I think, last year. And halfway up the mountainside, my Jeep died. Uh-huh. But yeah. anyway, anyway, congratulations. The book is incredible. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not just about okra. It's about culture. It's about food. It's about connections. And uh, it's got quite a bit of unusual stuff about the people's vegetable. Anyway, I just wanted to say congratulations, y'all. Thank you, Felder. That means a lot. Thanks, Felder. Thanks for uh, calling in, Felder. Go ahead, Carol. Your, your conversation there reminded me of a, a quote I pulled out of, of the front of your book, and you have great quotes throughout, but I love this by Kim Severson, who is a writer for the New York Times, mm -hmm. who covers a lot of our food waste of the South. And she says, okra has been like the awkward girl no one but her family thought had any talent. But just <laughs> look at her now. Yeah, I, I love Kim's writing. She's, she's a, a passionate Southern food writer for sure. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, in the book, you talk not only about food with okra, but all the other uses for okra, like cosmetics. And I'm fascinated by the thought of doing an okra face mask. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess um, you probably saw the photograph of of your wife and daughter of, of my wife and daughter with a okra face mask that we we had a bit of an experiment on. It, it's kind of interesting. And it goes back to my earlier point, okra has been used in cosmetics for quite some time. It just doesn't seem to get the public recognition of some of these other crops like, you know, aloe is very trendy and has this hydrating quality. Okra has all the same properties, but doesn't seem to have like passed into that thought process of thinking, oh, okra is really useful or really cool or really good for me or, or whatever it may be. Thank you so much. We have another caller on the phone, Tommy Cadle from Boonville, Mississippi, who called me earlier this uh, weekend and I hadn't returned your call. So just think of this as, re as my return call, Tommy. What's up? Well, I, I, this is really old news. I intended to call you a couple of months ago, I guess, and <clears throat> at a doctor's appointment. But I got a call from my cousin, a young country singer from Owen Payton, Trailer Parker, and Trailer says, we've got the virus figured out. Now, this is old news, but it may be helpful down the road. I said, well, what? Share with me. He said, nobody in Payton has it. We're all eating pokes at it. So I said, well, <laughs> well there you are go. You, you boiling it and putting chopped egg? Yeah. He said, but we're cutting up the stalks and frying it like okri. Okri. Huh. You know, Frying I've been listening to these stalks. very intelligent, very bright people highly educated, uh, mispronounce the word and call it okra. And that's fine. You know, that's fine. 
but it's the intrademic pronunciation of the letter A, which comes out of double E. But I'm a Democrat. There's room for everybody at my table, so I don't uh, I don't criticize them for that. But uh, you know, I just thought they ought to know the truth. Man, thank you so much for setting us straight, uh, Tommy. It is. Uh, it will now only be pronounced as Oakry on Deep South Dining. <laughs> Have a good day. All right, man. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you. Now back to Lord Ladyfingers, the one and only Chris, who has written this definitive book on Oakry. And I see that you gave this presentation that later launched the book. Was this uh, at the Southern Foodways where you made the the presentation (laughs) in in defense of Oakry? Yeah, Oakry. Um, I do do like that pronunciation of it. so no, I, I, there's a organization in Asheville called the Organic Growers School. And that was the first place that I'd given a presentation on uh, like a single crop subject. And I chose okra as the uh, topic. And yeah, I, I, I kind of was very much in the early days of my research and fascination with okra. And running up against was as, as I was experiencing okra kind of like a child, right? Because I'd never, I hadn't grown up with it. I didn't have any cultural stereotypes. I was just growing okra and thinking, my gosh, this this plant produces so much and it's all edible. And I was starting to read about it. I was like, oh, I can eat the leaves. Oh, no, the flowers are edible. I don't need to put any fertilizer on it. These plants are getting 12 feet tall and still producing in October. It was just like blowing my mind as a crop. And I would tell people and share this excitement with people I would meet at various conferences. And so many people would just be like, oh, it's I hate okra. It's slimy. And and all these kind of complaints about okra. And I decided that I should give this presentation and call it in defense of okra to kind of stand up and publicly defend okra to all the people that seem to dislike it, including Stephen King, by the way. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you're talking about how prolific it is, and in your book, I enjoyed reading uh, reading you know, what you say about it being a good crop for the world. Mm. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I have I, I work in agriculture. I, I run a nonprofit called the Utopian Sea Project, and we're very interested in resilient agriculture and the way that food systems can be a mitigating factor for climate change and not a contributing factor to climate change. And so when I look at okra and see that it's able to produce so many different food crops and fiber crops without a whole lot of externalized inputs like fertilizers and even water, then it's just an extremely impressive crop that I feel if we could displace some more of these intensive commodity crops, then okra could really step into agriculture in a way that can mitigate climate change in quite a productive way. So I've got a lot of faith in okra and okra's future in our food systems. And where where can our listeners learn more about your utopian seed project? Yeah, we we have a website where we put a lot of our research up called utopianseed.org. And then we have Instagram and Facebook profiles if you want to follow along, which is the same handle, Utopian Seed Project. And Chris, people can get there, too, if they don't remember how to spell Utopian or something like Just put in Chris Smith Okra and it leads you (laughs) you down the rabbit hole and you'll eventually get to the seed project. Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll find me. Uh, the we've continued to work with okra. 
as part of that seed project, the Utopian Seed Project, I, I started off kind of like working with a local seed company called So True Seed, and they supported me in my early research. And then they helped me break off into this nonprofit to continue doing crop research, which includes okra, but isn't just about okra. So, Chris, uh, you know, with squash, uh, before it makes the, the fruit and the, or the vegetable, uh, it has a beautiful flower. And so does okra. Okra has a tremendous, tremendously beautiful flower. Have you ever used that, like stuffing the okra flower and eating it? Or do you have ways to eat the flower? Yeah, um, it's it's related to hibiscus. So it's got that real beautiful trumpet-like five-petaled flower. And the whole thing's edible. And the way I love to kind of surprise people when they come out to my field is just to snip one off and give it to them raw and have them eat it that way. And you, you get to appreciate it. You can do the same thing with squash flowers. Squash flowers tend to be a little bit more prickly, so they're not so good raw but they're a little bit tougher. So when you stuff them and either bake them or fry them as like the traditional way to do squash, they tend to hold up a little bit better because they're a little bit tougher. Squash, mm. um, okra flowers are a little more delicate. So I have had them stuffed and fried uh, with a light tempura batter. And, you know, anything stuffed with cheese and fried is going to taste really good. But what you what, what happens when you do that with okra is you, you lose some of that delicacy of the flower is lost and you, you you don't really know you're eating the okra flower. So I encourage absolutely everybody next time they come across an okra plant to eat one of the flowers and just enjoy it raw. It's good in salads. You can dry it down for a tea, which is a great way to do it. And there's, there's lots of good ways to do it without having to fry it. Right. Um, Chris, give us some tips uh, on shopping for okra. In the supermarket or at farmer's market type of yeah. shopping? Okay. Um, so okra, as it gets longer, gets more fibrous. But also as it gets longer, the seeds develop. And the seeds are where the fats and the proteins are. So there's a lot of flavor in those seeds. So there's a lot of people who say you've got to get the real, real, real short okras, which is a fair enough piece of advice because you know they're absolutely not going to be fibrous. But they're also going to have a slightly more grassy taste. If you're in the supermarket, then I would probably go for the shorter ones just so you're not risking it. But if you get to interact with your farmer or you're growing it yourself, then you can have a conversation with them, maybe even try it at the farmer's market. And if you can get it slightly longer, but before it goes fibrous, then you're in a place where you've got this delicious tasting okra. Now, I don't know if your farmers are going to let you do this, especially in the times of COVID. But if you take an okra pod and just grab the tip of it, and just give it a quick flick with your fingers, like kind of breaking the end off a pencil or a, a carrot or an okra pod, then if it snaps cleanly and there's no like crunching or fibers, then it doesn't matter how long that pod is. It's going to be good to eat. There's not going to be any fibers in it. If when you snap the tip and it kind of crunches a bit or you see some fibers, then that pod's too long for eating as a fresh vegetable and don't buy that from the farmer. What When frying okra, what is your preferred methodology of preparation, vertical or horizontal cutting? Are you, are you trying to get me in trouble here? Yeah. yeah I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm very inclusive in my okra preparation, uh, certainly as an outsider. So I wouldn't want to uh, contradict anybody who's been doing this for generations. But I, I don't actually fry okra very often. But I do love roasting it, like a high heat roast. And when I do that, I slice it lengthways. So it's almost like a long chip. 
um, or fry, I guess, in America, sorry. Um, and so I slice it lengthways, and, and then it's just one cut, which is nice as well. You can go through a lot of okra quickly, and I put it in the oven with a little oil and salt and roast it on a high heat, and it starts to kind of go crispy and crunchy and a little bit browned, almost caramelized. You get some sweet flavors coming through. And I'm telling you, my two-year-old, my five-year-old, like everybody I've ever put that in front of, it just disappears really quickly. For, yeah, for frying, I, I would bring it. Uh, yeah, I saw a recipe in your book uh, for okra fries. It was one of Vivian Howard's yeah. recipes. And uh, I've already made a copy of that. It's 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 my go-to recipe because you can get go through like a couple of pounds of okra. You can prepare it really quickly, cook it really quickly. And also, I, I used to go around agricultural conferences with a box that said, I'm writing on a book on okra, come and speak to me. Most people would ignore me, but the people that came to tell me stuff about okra <laughs> would usually want to tell me how I could convert other people to liking okra. That's kind of like a, a unifying force of okra lovers is to want to get more people to love okra. And that recipe came up all the time. They were like, if you want to convince somebody that doesn't like okra to like okra, roast it or grill it and make it nice and crunchy and it just disappears from the table. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And there you heard it from the mouth of the master, the okra evangelist, Chris Smith. Thanks so much for joining us today. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. It is funded by generous contributions from folks just like you. Our show is produced by the one and only Ooey Gooey Java Chap. Thanks to my co-host, Carol Puckett, and to our guest today, Emily Jones from Delta State and Chris Smith from England and now in North Carolina. I'm Malcolm White. Stay tuned now for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy followed at 11 a.m. You can join Carol and Java and I every Monday right here at 9 a.m. for Deep South Dining only on MPB Think Radio.